Welcome to No Ad, No Problem, a podcast devoted to college tennis and growing the game. Check us out on Twitter at JTweetsTennis and Instagram at No Ad, No Problem. I'm your host, John. Let's serve it up. Hey, everyone. If you paid any attention to the NCAA tournament this year at the USTA National Campus in Lake Nona, Florida, then you know there were a lot of issues. Now, there are issues every year with the NCAAs. It is never perfect. But this year felt worse than in years past, and I've been attending this event every year since 2010. So I've been trying to think of the most productive way to discuss the issues that I saw in Lake Nona, while still holding the USTA and the NCAA to account. So this isn't going to be a laundry list of all of the issues, although don't worry, there will definitely be plenty. But I'm hoping to convey a broader narrative that I think these issues are a symptom of. So if this podcast were an essay, my thesis would be this. Tennis is a bottom tier college sport. The USTA should care about changing that. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem like the USTA does, as evidenced by its subpar hosting of the 2023 NCAAs, and therefore, they should no longer host NCAAs moving forward. Let's dive into each one of these points. Number one, tennis is a bottom-tier college sport, and it pains me to write and say those words. It really does. But it's also true. College sports is such a unique product. It has such a rich history, obsessed fans, school rivalries, more accessible players, and athletics has never been bigger in college sports. Forbes estimates that there's about $8 billion in revenue for college athletics, and it's never been more prominent with the recent addition of name, image, and likeness, players being able to profit off of that. And that profile and attention of college sports has led to some incredible broadcasting milestones within college athletics this past year. Some really notable women's results, you know, this past year, 5.5 million people watched the Iowa women's basketball team upset undefeated South Carolina in the NCAA semifinals. And then 9.9 million people tuned in to see LSU take out Iowa in the national championship game, you have women's gymnastics peaking at over 1 million viewers on ABC for their NCAA tournament. And you have women's softball, which last year earned 1.7 million viewers in their championship game, more than the baseball final. So the momentum for college sports, it's palpable and it's exciting. Just now, every pitch of the NCAA softball and baseball tournament is either on TV or live streamed by ESPN, all with thousands of cheering fans in attendance. But tennis is not there at all. And it's really not on linear TV or prominent streaming channels. Last year, and I wrote about this on the No Ad No Problem blog, 25 of the 30 NCAA championships aired on television or were streamed by ESPN. The five sports that are not included were tennis, rifle, skiing, rowing, and men's water polo. 
Now, this year in 2023, the Tennis Channel aired about eight hours of NCAA coverage. Now, thankfully, Cracked Rackets had a ton of coverage on its YouTube channel from the first round of the team event all the way through the individual final. But despite that, tennis is incredibly far behind from a broadcasting perspective. And in addition, if the broadcasting details are not enough to prove that tennis is really uh, bottom of the pack when it comes to college athletics, you can also just turn to social media. When I looked at this last year, also on the No Ad No Problem blog, tennis is the least followed SEC sport on Twitter. It, it Across all of the 14 SEC schools, when you look at Twitter followings for the specific school and their specific sports programs, tennis isn't dead last. And you just need to look up other NCAA sport Twitter accounts to see that tennis is really far behind on social media as well. The NCAA tennis account has 10.9 thousand followers. Sports like baseball and softball have almost 400,000 followers. Sports like track and field, lacrosse, wrestling, all have over 100,000 followers. Tennis is in a really perilous place right now in college athletics. And as painful as that is for me to say and for probably you to hear, it's true. And that brings me to my next point, is that of all of the governing bodies and entities and institutions that care about college athletics, there really shouldn't be one that cares more about the success of college tennis than the USTA. Now, you might be thinking, well, what about other institutions like the ITA? And yes, of course, the ITA would not be in existence if college tennis was not a college sport. But for the purposes of this conversation, we're going to focus on the USTA. They were the host site for the 2023 NCAAs. The ITA is not. So we'll talk about why the USTA should care about the state of college tennis. And there's two ways to look at this. The first is sort of a more, I'll call it optimistic lens. And the second is perhaps a more cynical lens. But I think both get you to the same point. So on the optimistic side, the USTA's mission statement says that they are the national governing body for the sport of tennis and the leader in promoting and developing the sport's growth on every level in the United States, from local communities to the crown jewel of the professional game, the U.S. Open. Also, when I was looking for this mission statement, I found this nugget, which we will certainly revisit later on, which is that to serve the sport at every level of play, the USTA recently debuted the USTA National Campus, the new home of American tennis, opened in January 2017, a 100-court tennis facility that will redefine how the USTA delivers on its mission and provide a new vision for the future of tennis in the U.S. So basically, when you take this mission statement of the USTA, what it comes down to is they want to get more people playing tennis at every level of the game, from you know, your juniors starting to pick up the sport all the way to your adult leagues. That is what promoting and developing the sport's growth means. My question is, how do you do that if the sport of tennis isn't visible? And given what we discussed when it comes to broadcasting, 
think of just how much more likely it is for a young girl, let's say, ages 6 through 10, to see a sport like basketball, softball, gymnastics, or volleyball on TV other than tennis. You can't dream what you can't see. And the people we need to be dreaming of playing and winning at the elite level in college tennis, they can't see it. It's not being broadcast. It's not making the rounds on social media. It's not palpable for young players who would be getting into the junior game. And I think that's a big problem. But this extends beyond the end goal of just college tennis. If the USTA stands by its mission of wanting to grow tennis at every level, that means junior tennis, high school tennis, you know, community recreational leagues, and the same principle holds as these other collegiate sports skyrocket in visibility and publicity and truly skyrocket, right? Like step change increase in TV viewership for these collegiate sports. So will the junior and high school programs of those sports. And so one way to make tennis more accessible, more popular at the grassroots junior level is to ensure that kids can see it. I mean, if you're a parent out there, how how often does your kid say, hey, mom, hey, dad, I want this toy because I saw someone else playing with it. Even if you just have siblings, if another sibling has a toy and you want that, right? That's the same thing that, you know, happens with how kids get involved and how kids fall in love with these sports is they're able to see it on TV. They're able to now see it on social media and they're able to see those success stories and they can see themselves in those positions. You just don't have that right now for college tennis. And if the USDA wants to incentivize growth at the junior level, they need to be making every effort to make tennis more visible across these communities in the U.S. And a great example, I think, of a governing body who I think really understands this is USA Volleyball. So I don't think I talked about volleyball as one of the examples of broadcasting success, but they have had phenomenal success over the last few years. Over a million people watched uh, the Nebraska-Wisconsin final last year, and they've been having success not only on ESPN, but on network cable as well. And one thing that they did, if you research and kind of try and understand how did USA Volleyball grow collegiate volleyball, they went to the Big Ten and proposed to the Big Ten and said, hey, after Big Ten football games, let's air college volleyball. So if you have the Ohio State Wisconsin football game on and you keep the TV on next up, it's Ohio State Wisconsin in volleyball. You already have a built in fan base and so many of these rabid college fans will watch their own school do anything. (laughs) And when you have a sport like volleyball, that's exciting to watch. That's a great way to get people hooked. And that worked. And last year they had dozens of games broadcast on TV, part of the big 10 network and have expanded to ESPN. And it's been a great way to get volleyball into the homes of more people which 
as they discuss, will have an outsized impact on getting more young players interested in playing volleyball. And I'm just not seeing that level of sophistication from the USTA or the ITA in terms of getting college tennis into the homes of more people. But that's sort of the optimistic, we believe everything that the the USTA states in their mission statement. I'm not saying there's any reason to doubt it, but that's sort of the, um, the easy path scenario. The more cynical lens here is that the USTA only cares about its cash cow, the US Open, and finding and funding future slam champions. And so even if that's true, everything I just said earlier, it still holds. How are you going to, one, build future slam champions if all of your country's best junior athletes are going into other sports, sports that are on TV, get hyped on social media, and are cool to play? And two, continue to drive attendance and intrigue of the US Open if adults around the country aren't regularly plugged in to tennis. And particularly on number one, it feels so short-sighted to me to think you can build a pipeline of champions by cherry-picking a few random kids whose parents have pushed them into tennis versus making the sport more popular across the country in all communities so you entice the best athletes in those communities to pick up tennis. At this point, not only are your best athletes not seeing tennis to even pick it up, but if they're aware of it, it doesn't come across as something that is cool or something that they can dream towards, right? Because they're not seeing it on TV, on social media in a way that would ultimately want them to be successful in that sport. And so even if the cynical lens is true, where the USDA just cares about the US Open and and building champions, I still think it's in the USDA's best interest to ensure that college tennis doesn't fall behind in popularity to other college sports. But that does not seem to be happening. Because as evidenced by its subpar hosting of the 2023 NCAAs, they don't seem to share my philosophy. So previously, I had been bullish on hosting the NCAAs at Lake Nona. There was so much hype around the opening of the USDA national campus in 2017. And in that first year to two years in 2018, 2019, the facility is close to an airport. It's super easy to get to. There's lots of attractions for families to do in this surrounding area. There's so many courts at the facility. You know, you saw John Roddick, the former head coach of Oklahoma, after making three straight NCAA finals, get wooed from Oklahoma to UCF because of this connection to the USTA facility there. And leading up to the 2019 NCAAs, things were trending upward. The USTA and the Tennis Channel signed a three-year partnership to show more than 50 hours of live matches in 2019, the most TV coverage the NCAAs had ever had. And there was so much talk about how there would be a Tennis Channel broadcasting booth on campus. 
how the USTA wanted to use this as an advertising opportunity for the opening of the USTA national campus and the importance of college tennis as a developmental pathway to the pros. And on the grounds in 2019, the USTA national campus was less than two years old. There was so much promise of what this could look like for American tennis. Not only would you have a thriving you know, junior and player development and adult leagues based out of this campus, you would have American professionals who were based in Orlando using this as their training hub, given its proximity to the airport, its location in Florida. And then you would have what could be the future home of NCAAs and truly start to build out a road to Orlando. And going there for the first time in 2019, you felt that blueprint. You felt the foundation being laid for a potential road to Orlando. And coming away from 2019, I was bullish on that. I thought that there could be major promise here. And the concerns that I had in 2019 could be assuaged by the fact that this was still a new endeavor and the fact that you had people from the USDA talking about the promise that this still had. And so in 2019, were there cows next to the courts? Yeah, but you're thinking, okay, but I'm told soon there's going to be a beautiful hotel right there. In 2019, were there no workable scoreboards? Yes, but you're being, you're at least thinking, of course, that will change in future years. In 2019, was there a lack of shade despite the sweltering temperatures and the disgusting love bugs? Yes, but you're thinking, of course, there's going to be continued investment into this facility with future improvements. And so you come away thinking that while this is a a raw facility, the foundation was there and it really could be great. Then COVID happens, and when none of those changes happened in 2021, and there was a step back in TV coverage, that also felt explainable because you had COVID derailing so much construction across the entire country. You had COVID shrinking budgets. And even in 2021, at that event, you know, fan attendance was still limited. Yes, we were in Florida, but it was 50% capacity for everything up until the final. And honestly, many of us were just really thankful we even had a tournament in 2021. So when 2023 comes along and Lake Nona is the host of this historical milestone where all three divisions of tennis are being played at the same location. There was renewed but hesitant optimism for what could really be delivered. And unfortunately, and this was observable whether you were in person or following remotely, the USTA delivered an event that was worse run than their run-of-the-mill junior event. And a few things to mention before we dive in on some of the issues. It's really tough to know when something is on the host site, in this case, the USTA or the NCAA. Uh, So it's tough to know exactly where blame falls. 
Now I can do my best guess to try and assign blame or hold people accountable for it, but it is tough to know. So that's one caveat. And then I will say, look, I'm sure there are lots of great, well-intentioned people who spent a lot of time not only prepping for this event, but also hosting this event. But sadly for them, that didn't come through. And the purpose of this isn't so much as to look back and complain, but rather do two things. The first is to provide some level of accountability. On the grounds, people would often ask me you know, how it could be possible that this event had so many issues. And surely the NCAA was getting lots of feedback. And I'm not sure that that's true at all. And if it was, a lot of the low-hanging fruit that we saw not fixed between 2019 to 2021 to 2023, it would have been addressed in previous iterations. The second is to inform future hosts of improvements that they can make to make this event better and up to the standard that the student athletes and these programs deserve, particularly in parallel to what we're seeing the rest of college athletics experience. So with that, let's dive into some of the ways that this tournament failed. So the first is, in terms of hosting all divisions, I think this is really nice in theory. This was the reason I was given for having the crazy scheduling of D1 matches starting not before 5 p.m., men never starting before 8 p.m., I didn't really buy that because there were plenty of days where the courts were sitting empty in the collegiate center in the early to mid afternoon. One example in particular, it was for the round of 16 D3 individual event where they moved them to the kind of non-collegiate center hard courts. And there's no scoreboard, there's no seating. So I think the D3 event ended up getting shafted in addition to the D1 event because of the scheduling. So I think in order to pull off such an event of this magnitude, one, you need to recognize that it is a significant magnitude and you need to be able to nail at least one of them first. And the USTA slash NCAA in this case has not proven that they can nail the D1 team and individual event. So before we start throwing in other variables into the mix, Let's nail one thing first. So I think while historic, I don't think anyone really benefited from having all of the divisions here uh, at one time. All right. The second is, and there's a lot in this category, is the, the facility overall. So first is the scoreboard. Look, the, the scoreboard is laughably bad. It has been laughably bla- laughably bad every year that I've gone and it's completely illegible from any place in the stands. And I'm talking kind of like the, the general scoreboards. You can see all six courts. It, you just can't even read it from anywhere in the stands. And not only could you not read it, but it struggled to work kind of consistently throughout the tournament. And this was the very first sign, the very first day when I walked in, when I knew things were going to be bad. Because they've had those scoreboard issues at every single event, and there was never any backup plan. And one of the things that surprised me about this and kind of clued me in to maybe a lack of care 
being put into this event was the lack of backup plan. So knowing that they've had such scoreboard issues, they didn't even have like the physical scoreboards on the net post that you could at least just track like game score, nothing. And so this I thought was a really bad sign and just a rough uh, harbinger of things to come because it was illegible. And even the scoreboards that were on the individual courts, which you don't have the same issues reading, you can actually read them. Font is large enough. It's not just a, a screenshot of the live streaming site. Those went down so often. So even in person, in person, we were equally as in the dark oftentimes about scoring as those at home. Um, but you would try and go on the live scoring site and that was unreliable. So, I mean, you have six matches to monitor. It really shouldn't be that hard to have a contingency plan, plan, either something that is a physical scoreboard on the court or even someone tweeting out scores, right? At some point, I was like, just give me the NCAA tennis handle. Like, I'll tweet them out just so people can be aware of what's going on. But that was bad. Not good. Just not good. Uh, and unfortunately, that was the same thing every year. Uh, okay, so the next thing that was alarming were the, I'll call them broken courts. <laughs> it was the first time I've ever seen this, but the court surface was consistently like coming up a little bit. And I don't know if they were like bubbles on the court or what it was, but pretty much every day a different court had the same issue. And so you'd have to bring out the court repair team you know, they'd have to address it, but you'd have to move players to different courts. And it was so bad that in the NCAA semifinal, number one, North Carolina playing against Georgia, they had to start with only five singles because court two was unusable. That's how bad it was. And again, I don't know exactly what the issue was. I do know these courts were resurfaced in December, but it was incredibly odd and it just felt like a very awkward physical embodiment of the lack of care and investment that went into hosting this event. It was just a bad look uh, all around. All right. So next on the facility is that there's just not enough seating at this facility. And this is something I thought was going to be addressed over the years. It's been four years since they first hosted in 2019. The overall facility is 1,500, but that includes both sides of the facility. So that includes both banks of six. So it's 1,500 total. So you're really only talking about 750 for one side. And you look at a school like Georgia, they have several thousand fans for regular season matches this year. You look at those round of 16 super regionals like Schools can absolutely pull in more than 750. And I think for the finals, there are more than 750 people there and there's just not enough seating for them. And it's cramped and uncomfortable and there's no reason for it, right? And that is what grinds my gears a little bit about this facility is because there's no reason for any of this, right? We're not space constrained here at this marsh in Lake Nona, right? We have plenty of space uh, to add more seating. Um, and so that's something that uh, is, is disappointing and kind of adds to uh, not as great of an experience as we could have. Second to last here 
on the facility is shade. So there is no permanent shade at all for the stands here, which is really wild to me after they hosted this in 2019 that they haven't done something more permanent, even if it was sort of like an overhang awning that at least provided some level of shade like you have at Baylor or even just more of those temporary tents, at least something. Right now, they just have a few temporary tents which uh, cover a few bleachers seating, which are kind of in the top-level walkway. And if you look at any point during a day match, that is almost where 90% of the crowd, they are essentially all under the shaded bleachers. And so it really only takes one person to look at that and say, huh, Got it. We don't have enough time to build a permanent overhang, although I, I think it would have could have been built in four years. But let's say you're just evaluating whether this facility is ready to host NCAAs. Why don't we at least bring more of those tents up to the top? So if you're going to host in Florida, you need to make sure there's plenty of shade for fans. All right. Last facility note is the. Indoor facility is uh, not up to par for what is needed to host the NCAA event. It is crazy to me that they built this entire campus from scratch in a state of Florida that, while hot, gets a good amount of rain, and they didn't build any indoor seating. They have six indoor courts, which do not seem to be well upkept. And in 2019 and 2021, we didn't have any major issues with rain for the team. We did get some nighttime drizzle that delayed, and we did have matches going quite late because of that. But you know, we didn't have what we had this year where the men's quarters were essentially all washed out and had to move the following day due to the rain and the lightning delay. And we never went indoors for the team, which is good because they could not have really, I mean, no fans would have been allowed if that were to be the case because they have six indoor courts and the only seating they have are three bleachers on one side of court one. And I felt so bad for one family in particular who was watching their fifth year daughter compete in her final collegiate match, sitting on the bleachers on court one, and she was on court six. And the best they could do was monitor body language, guess whether it was a come on or an exasperated frustration, the live scoring wasn't working, they could try and stream on Cracked Rackets YouTube, and that was a few points behind, like, just a horrible, horrible way to watch your daughter's college career end. And particularly to be done at the home of American tennis, it's just not suitable for a collegiate event of this magnitude. And I feel like the referees did not do fans any favors for when we had to go indoors for the individual semifinals. They played these matches on court's three and five, which again, those bleachers that I talked about were on court one while they used court one for doubles warmups. So you're sitting there in the bleachers 
you know, either watching your son or daughter compete three courts away at best, five courts away at worst, and in front of you are players warming up for their doubles matches. Why they didn't put the singles matches on court one and three, which that would mirror what they did for outdoors, and then have the people warming up go down to the faraway courts, I do not understand. But indoor seating, just a huge reason to not host here at the USTA campus again. And it's interesting because in 2017, when the last time Georgia hosted it, Georgia only at this point in time had four indoor courts, and they did have seating behind those four indoor courts, but they had to go indoors for the 2017 team final. And I think that was really the final straw for uh, Georgia hosting to have to go indoor for the team final and play it on four indoor courts. And it was a really bad situation. You had people trying to watch from the garage outside and they were told to go home and it was a, it was a bad situation, but it's ironic to me that Georgia with four indoor courts, but seating is told, sorry, it's a no go, but the USDA with six indoor courts and literally no seating is able to host. I don't really know how that works. All right. So that is all the stuff on the facility. Let's move on to the fan experience. All right. So we'll start with concessions. So the only place to get concessions is outside the ticketed area, which is a poor design. And concessions were often closed or with very limited supply. And it was actually completely closed for the revised men's schedule. So when they moved the men's quarterfinals from the night session to the semifinals, no concessions available at that point in time. And it was closed for the entirety of the individual event. And so to me, this was another example of just a lack of commitment, right? I mean, when you revise those men's quarterfinals to play during the day, you absolutely find a few people to go out there and run the concession stand. And again, when you're hosting an event in Florida, you can't have no refreshments to offer fans within the immediate proximity of the facility. It's honestly dangerous. And you had people kind of choosing, okay, do I want to buy a $5 water from this concession stand that's going to run out of water really soon? Or do I want to go see if the vending machine that's selling half price water is is working? It was just a really bad concession setup this year and certainly needs to be improved in the future. Okay, so the other thing on fan experience is the updated draws slash just the whole championship site and communication. So I'll start with this. So previously in years past, you used to be able to go to kind of the main site, whether that be the host site. I think oftentimes on the host site, we'll have their own like NCAA championship section. And there was kind of your one-stop shop for everything, right? You could see the schools that are playing. You could get a recap of each and every day. You would have quotes from the winning and losing coaches and usually one representative player. You'd have the schedule up for the next day and you'd have updated draws. Maybe if the host site goes above and beyond, 
They'd have you know write-ups about each of the schools, all of that. You basically had none of that this year with the USDA. I mean, you were hard-pressed to get draws for the individual event that sometimes just weren't updated for days. And a big shout out to Randy Walker, who would tweet out updated draws once they were sent to coaches because they were just never published on the NCAA site. And so the communication this year was just almost non-existent. And this was the second year that I had a press pass. And I never got any email about any change in scheduling. You know, so the men's quarters, for example, being rescheduled to the following day and being played midday and then updating the semis, all of that. No email, no notice about any of that. And it makes you think, and I actually chatted with a few people on the grounds about this. If you were casually interested in attending this event, how on earth would you go about doing that? Where would you go to find out when these matches were, who's playing? I mean, it's almost impossible. I mean, even people who are on site in Lake Nona, who are family of participants, are struggling to get information about what time people are playing. It was so bad. And yeah, I mean, I, it's just like that is so far from the bare minimum of what tennis and college tennis needs to be doing to at least allow casual fans. And, to get into the sport. And that is one of the through lines of a lot of this, which is some of this access exists if you know where to find it, right? I talked about Cracked Rackets covering and I talked about Tennis Channel covering it. No casual fan who maybe is a fan of, say, North Carolina is going to stumble into the Tennis Channel coverage of the semifinals. They could stumble into that if it's on ESPN, right, and has North Carolina marked as a school that they're interested in. The same thing, no one is going to stumble into, hey, the NCAA event is happening in Orlando. I live in Orlando. Maybe I want to go by because it's pretty much impossible to find any information about it. The other place it was impossible to find information from was the NCAA tennis account. and historically, this account has been used to provide information about things like lightning delays, weather delays, results, you know, clips, all of that fun stuff. The account really had nothing this year. I mean, so many times, particularly in the individual events, you know, it would say, hey, we'll be back with an update at 8 p.m., only to just never provide an update, right? No updates about when the draws were coming out, the revised times, no clips no results. And again, this is where it's like there has to be someone either at the USDA or the NCAA who can just have access to that account and provide updates as they come in. Again, I would have been happy to do it. (laughs) Just give me the password. I will update the Twitter account. It's not that hard. So overall, I felt like the fan experience was really lacking uh, for people who were on site. And again, I tweeted this out while I was there because there were so many complaints about the online coverage of the finals, right? The live scoring was down. The, I don't know if the, I don't think the streaming was down, but the live scoring was down and 
you know, it was so hard for people to follow. And that's really one of the reasons why I go to this event every year in person, because if you love college tennis and you want to reliably follow this event, there's nothing more frustrating than sitting in your house (laughs) trying to follow it. Now, this year was the first year I felt like it was equally frustrating being on site, particularly when we had to go indoors for individuals. I mean, it really rendered being in person almost moot. That was really the first time I've ever felt that coming to this event in 13 years. So overall, those are some of the more egregious things I saw or experienced. But the overall theme was just a carelessness and a lack of foresight, which, as we talked about earlier, college tennis can't afford. The sport is in a perilous position relative to other sports in college athletics. So for the country's governing body to seemingly care so little about hosting these championships, it's a tough pill to swallow. And it's one that's made even tougher knowing how many accolades the USTA gets for running the US Open. And there was just such an intense irony of sitting in, I'm sorry, but like a dilapidated looking indoor facility, watching allegedly, you know, the most should be the most premier college tennis event in the country from five courts away and seeing the US Open get announced as the sports event of the year at the Sports Business Awards. That event acumen that is getting those awards at the US Open was certainly not on display at its own national campus. And the entire tennis ecosystem, as we've talked about here, is worse off for it. So the USTA won't host NCAAs until at least 2027, because 2024, we go to Oklahoma State, then we're at Baylor, and then Georgia will host for the first time since 2017 in 2026. And based on what I saw this year, I'll honestly be surprised if the USTA even bids on the NCAAs, but if they do, they shouldn't get it unless a serious overhaul is done on both this facility and overall event operations. On a lighter note, I am optimistic for NCAAs in Stillwater, and I'm hopeful that more and more people realize the challenging position tennis is in and decide to step in to help. I'm planning on covering more of that this offseason because I think there are a lot of influential people who have a vested interest in seeing college tennis be successful and can really make a dent in advancing college tennis. So let me know your thoughts on NCAAs in Lake Nona at jtweetstennis on Twitter and at noadnoproblem on Instagram. How do you think the event can be improved? What else did you see that maybe I didn't touch on this episode? Thank you again to all of you who commiserated with me on site this year. That's honestly one of the best parts. It's great to get to meet people, chat with folks, and I will talk with you all soon. Thanks, everyone.